me to the book of Daniel this morning. The book of Daniel. It's page 940. Daniel 4, chapter 4, page 940 in your pew Bible. If you're using that, if you brought your own Bible, I can't help you. So just keep flipping around until you find Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. I'll give you a hint. <clears throat> I do want to uh, mention tonight, 6 o'clock communion. Let me just invite you to come uh, and just uh, a sweet time of fellowship together as we uh, seeing and testify of God's goodness and how he's worked in our lives and always always an encouragement uh, as we come and uh, have communion together. The Lord commanded us to, and I love John said his commandments are not grievous, and that is one of those things he calls us to do and commands us to do, and we find great joy and benefit in doing that. So let me invite you to come back tonight, 6 o'clock, uh, communion service. And of course, Ben already mentioned next Sunday we will have our sunrise service at 7 o'clock in the morning. Well, you found your place in Daniel. Um, I want to, I guess, let me start this way. Have you ever been surprised by God? I mean, you, did you say never? never. Oh, ever, always? <laughs> so I didn't expect that from you, Ed, Never. <laughs> <laughs> I never expected never from you. Um, I, I think we, we find ourselves surprised in many ways. I mean, sometimes he, the way he answers prayers, it's like, uh, it's just overwhelming. In other ways, the way he answers prayers is unexpected because he answers it in a way we did not want him to answer. Uh, but I also think we find ourselves surprised at God uh, just by reading your Bible. I was thinking about the song we sung. We talked about cutting one of the songs this morning because we had a video and trying to uh, be considerate about time, that thing. I'm so glad we didn't. Uh, as we were singing that uh, about holding on to Christ, my sins are forgiven. Isn't that surprising when you read that in the New Testament? Well, have you ever been troubled by God? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I got one participant this morning. <laughs> We're not doing participation trophies either, by the way. <laughs> um, well, I think it, it is something that happens quite often. Likewise, as we see Isaiah in chapter number 6, and he sees this vision of God on the throne high and lifted up, and, and, and he is troubled at the vision of God. At the bigness, the magnitude of who God is. Habakkuk, praying to God and Wondering why you're not doing anything in the world and why is your people so sinful? Uh, and then God says, oh, you think I'm not working? Well, let me tell you what I'm going to do. And you read the next few verses after God explains, you're not going to believe what I'm going to do. Habakkuk says, you're right, I don't believe it. And he expresses that kind of troubled reality as he comes to know who God is. Um, well, one of the joys we have in the Christian life, and I, and I say joy because we have many different ways we respond as we encounter God in his word. But one of the joys we have in, in the Christian life is, is to grow deeper uh, into the reality of who God is as we walk with Christ and we walk by the Spirit and we grow. Uh, God continues to unveil himself and reminds us that there's a depth to him that we will never plummet. We will never reach the bottom of. He's greater than we could ever 
think of. He's more magnificent than we could ever imagine. He's, he's, he's larger than we can ever comprehend. And yet we get the joy of opening his word and, and coming week after week and, and seeing who he is through his, through his word and through his work, not only in recorded for us in the word of God, but in our own lives as we live out this life in fellowship with God. Well, we have been going through, and the church here, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're going through a series in Philippians, and we'll take a break from that this week and um, finish what we started last week with a set of principles that this church has has used, has been foundational in our teaching and our discipleship and the ministry that we have here, uh, both here and the work that we're doing at the ministry center, and we refer to those as principles of discipleship. Now, we know a disciple is a follower of Jesus. It's just a simple label. There's nothing fancy about that. It's someone who is a follower of Jesus. In the truest sense, a disciple explains every one of us. We're all disciples if you're in Christ Jesus. It is simply a Christian. I know sometimes I say that because sometimes we think there's kind of some are disciples and others are just kind of tagging along. But we're all meant to be followers of Jesus Christ, those who have come to confess what the Bible says about Jesus as being true and turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so what we've discussed last week out of the book of Philippians, chapter number one, there's certain principles or foundational things, that, certain things that the gospel does or impacts or fruits of the gospel in our life. And we look at these phrases that I'll share with you this morning uh, through the lens of living the gospel, living the gospel Living the gospel is just simply living the Christian life, living as, as believing that Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, and died for our sins, and rose again the third day and ascended to heaven. And that all who confess him, all that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, shall have everlasting life. And, and through that belief, that, that new birth, that gift of salvation, uh, the impact of it is displayed in certain things which we see in our life. The Apostle Paul demonstrated it in his own life as we looked at last week. Three of these we'll look at the, the last two this morning. Just by way of reminder, we said last week that living the gospel is living with the earnest expectation to exalt Christ in all things, whether by left, uh, life or death. I must put those two words together. Might as well, right? So living the gospel, living the Christian life is living with the earnest expectation to exalt Christ in all things. Philippians 1.20 if you want a reference for that. As if to say in another way, the gospel reorients our life back to that amiable and glorious goal of exalting Christ instead of exalting self. That's where we are in our sinful state. We are selfish and we exalt self. We steal God's glory we may ascribe it to different things in life, but nevertheless, we do not give it to God. And yet through the gospel, living it out, we exalt Christ. And secondly, we stated living the gospel is living with an other's orientation for their joy in Christ Jesus. It's Philippians 1, 24 through 26. And you turn all over the New Testament, you're brought to those commands and exhortations to love one another care for one another, and look beyond your own self. 
to see the needs and the things going on in others' life. And so living the gospel is living with another's orientation. And thirdly, we mentioned last week that living the gospel is living with an eternal perspective for the glory of God. Philippians 1, 21 through 23, that famous verse, to live is Christ and to die is what? I think some of you believe that. Some of you are not sure because you didn't say that, right? Because you weren't sure if I was really wanting you to say that. So let's try it again. To live is Christ and to die is what? Okay, there we go. Let's bow our head for a word of prayer. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) So what we said is that living the gospel is living with this reality or living with an eternal perspective. We look beyond today in this moment, in this week, in this year to something much greater, something more permanent, something more lasting, eternity. It was Jonathan Edwards, that great New England theologian, who said in his prayer, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. What do you think about that? That's a good prayer. You might want to write that down. You can uh, begin praying that. That was his desire. Let me see everything through the lens of eternity. In fact, one of his, a couple of his resolutions reflect this as he went to, <clears throat> uh, as he went to tell us, uh, notes are out of order, sorry. As he went to tell us that he is resolved to live as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolve to live as I wish I had done 10,000 ages hence. He wanted to live in the moment, in every moment, with the reality of eternity. And that's what we do. We long for heaven. We say heaven is gain. And, and living with an eternal perspective is really living with the fragrance of heaven's beauty in our lives in this moment as we anticipate the world to come and as we live from that anticipation in the now. Well, this morning I want us to consider two more of these principles that we, that we have taught here and we hold to here, and that is living the gospel is living with the realization that God is sovereign over all things. And some of you may be writing that down, so I'll repeat. Living the gospel is living with the realization that God is sovereign over all things. And the second one is living, the gospel is living in the power of the indwelling spirit of Christ or spirit-filled living. Galatians 5 is a place we'll look at. With that, uh, that's that's uh, a large task to tackle this morning, but uh, let us look at a few verses here in the book of Daniel. I want to begin reading in the first three verses of chapter number four, and we'll conclude with verses 34 through 37. So we'll read verses one through three and then 34 through 37. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me, and how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation 
to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. My counselors, my Lord, sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all of his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There's a powerful image that you have in front of us in this passage as we consider God's sovereignty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and this passage we read. We just pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray that you will be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may be familiar with the story in Daniel that we are at in chapter number 4. Nebuchadnezzar is a king of kings. He is a king of kings, not the king of kings, and there is a difference. There is only one king of kings, and that's Jesus Christ we read in the book of Revelation. There's only one Lord of lords, but nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar was a king of many kings. He conquered kingdoms and he had rulers and authorities and nations bowing down before him. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon is a symbol for us in the word of God of, of the greatness of the kingdom of man. All of its splendor and all of its glory. Well, you find earlier when you see God revealing to Nebuchadnezzar his will and the kingdoms of men rising and falling. Out of all of those, the head of that statue. And the vision that he has is Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, the the golden part of the kingdom of men. Revelation describes for us in that picturesque form that it is Babylon which is at the attention of God's judgment as it falls and people weep. Now some of you you may have spent much time trying to figure out who Babylon is. I have my own guesses and, and so that's probably a different study at another time. But nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar is a significant figure in human history. He is a significant figure in the word of God. Here's a man who has everyone coming and bowing down before him. The riches of the world are pouring into Babylon. He is great. He is mighty. He is magnificent. So much so that he, he builds a golden statue made of himself so that at the sound of the music, everyone can bow down and worship him. It is this king which has gained this great access, this great rule over the nations of the world in his time that God decides to use as an object lesson. Teaching not only Daniel and the nation of Israel, but all, any who would pick up the book of Daniel and read it generations down, even us, that it is God and God alone who sits above the kingdom of men. Their greatness and their majesty is nothing but temporary dust in the hands of him who is eternal. He is the high king of heaven. He is the Lord of all lords. He is God of heaven and earth. In fact, the the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar is meant to to learn is found back in verse number 25 of chapter number 4. In a a series of visions, Nebuchadnezzar is troubled and, and Daniel 
is unveiling what's going on because Daniel has been given the wisdom by God to interpret dreams. And he says in verse number 25, that you shall be driven among the men, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. Your dwelling will be with the beast of the fields and you will be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with dew of heavens and seven periods of time shall pass over you. It just simply means seven years till you know. Now, what are you to know? Why is all of this taking place? Here's a man who, who robes himself in royalty, eats the best that the world has to offer, lives in the most finest conditions you can live, will be driven out like a wild man, like an animal, his nails growing, his hair growing, scratching in the fields like a beast in the field for this simple fact that you may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Isn't that a powerful statement? God is king of heaven and earth. God is in control. We say that often. He is sovereign. And by sovereign, we simply means that he is ruling and reigning over his kingdom. Sovereign simply is an expression of his reign or the act of his reign, the act of his majesty. And even Nebuchadnezzar describing this for us in the names he ascribes to God in verse 34, that he is the most high. And down in verse number 37 he again speaking of God as he refers to him as the king of heaven. The most high is just a description to say there is nobody like him. There is no higher seat than the seat of God. There's no other throne that is kind of an inch or two greater than the throne in which God possesses. And in fact, in Daniel or in Isaiah's vision of God high and lifted on the throne in chapter number six, there's no other central figure in the room in the temple other than God himself. He is a king all on his own level. His majesty is uncompared. He is, he is the highest, the pinnacle of all authority and all right and all rule and all majesty. He is God. And by the simple fact of him being God, he has all right to rule and reign over his creation. Nebuchadnezzar's come to this realization. He doesn't struggle with it. Uh, the, the man which we would say he's the king among all men at this point, Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, and yet... There is one greater than me, God who rules over the heavens and the earth. Now some suggest that even in our creeds we, we understand the sovereignty of God through this language of his being the most high or his almightiness as one writer puts it. It is a description of his ruling and reign. It is a description of who he is. Nebuchadnezzar speaks about it in this way as he describes the sovereignty of God. He says his dominion is everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. God does not ask for permission to be king. He does not seek counsels and votes to put him in as king. He is king. He has all right. They're his. He possesses them. And sometimes we struggle with the reality of God's sovereignty and we, we don't always connect God in kingship. But, but it's true when we speak of that, we're speaking of his reigning, his right and his authority over all things. 
And while we may struggle with it and we battle with it back and forth and, and there's all kinds of complications and for some of us there's that kind of queasiness or trouble in our own minds and hearts. What does it mean that God is a sovereign being? Well, it means for one, he cannot be manipulated or controlled. In fact, so great and so mighty is his rule and his reign that it says who can stop his hand in verse number 35 at the end. Or who can rebuke him? Let me just ask you a question. You ever, you ever did something dumb? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a question you don't need to answer because I know you have, right? <laughs> you're like me. <laughs> maybe, you're, maybe your parents or somebody or, or maybe it was your teacher or somebody said, what in the world did you do that for? It's like hitting your head against the wall and you, you respond back. I just like how it feels when I stop. And it's kind of this, are you crazy? No one ever rebukes God and says, what in the world have you done? Here is the ultimate being. With all wisdom and power and might, with all knowledge, he rules and reigns over his creation. His dominion is everlasting. There's no secession. There's not a king coming after him and a king coming after him. There is no end to his dominion. From generation to generation, he rules over the earth. Well, the greatest place we see this displayed is in the uh, creation account itself. You enter into your Bible and you're, uh, you're, you're kind of broadsided with this kind of blunt statement, in the beginning, God. There was nothing else. And outside of him, there was nothing else. And yet, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth based upon his own free will and his own desire. And out of his own wisdom and his infinite knowledge, he creates all things after the counsel of his own will. Creation itself is not a necessity. It's God who's the necessity. The Bible says not only in creation is his sovereignty displayed, that it is his creation. In Colossians, speaking of Christ, who made all things and he sustains all things. How is it holding together? And what a comfort to you and me. Because doesn't it feel like that we've got to hold our life together? I just reminded of Pastor Ed's gentle encouragement in class. How's that working out for you, right? Try not to quote him any more than that, but <laughs> your life, creation, this nation, the nations around the world, Russia and Ukraine and all the other things we see going on around us, which seems like it is, it's like one of those things that's just flying apart at the hinges. And yet the Bible says Christ is holding all things together. It is his creation. It was created for him which includes you. You were created for him and for his glory. And he is holding you together. You see, he teaches us in creation, shows us in his sovereignty. I think about this in Psalms 103, verse 19. You don't have to turn there. You can write the reference down. The Bible says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. In another psalm, it says, he does whatsoever he wills. Derek Thomas says something very provocative in an article on the sovereignty of God. And he says, nothing happens without God willing it to happen. 
willing it to happen before it happens and willing it to happen in the way it happens. How does that sit with you? That's right, Miss Jan, he's in charge. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't shrink back. You say there's all sorts of complications. I don't understand it all. And, and, and it's hard to wrestle with and deal with. And, and all of those things are true. But it doesn't shrink back to remind us that above all of it all, through all of it all, whether it's nations or the, the turmoil in my own life, that God is sovereign. Otherwise, when you say God's got this or God can handle this or God can do this, you don't mean anything by that. Because after all, he's taken off surprise and everything else is just running on its own and, and he's trying to catch up with it. He's not like us. The Bible tells us and reveals to us that this is his creation. God is in control. Not only over creation and creating it is his display, his throne over creation itself, but it, but it even reveals that over the nations. And it's remarkable when you get to Psalms 2. We, we understand God being sovereign over Israel. He called them out of, of Egypt. He, he put his name upon them. He's loved them with a covenant love and gave many promises to them. But then you get to the minor prophets and God says, I don't only have a bone to pick with Israel, but I'm calling all the nations out. Because he is sovereign over the kingdom of men. What is NATO? Compared to God, men plot and they plan. The Putins of the world and the Hitlers of the world and the, and, the, and the Bidens and all the other people in the world, they rise, they make plans, they do all the things that they do. And yet at the end, God says, he sits on the throne and he looks at them. Psalms 2 laughs and hold them in derision. What are they? Well, they will accomplish his purpose on the earth because he is in control. He is in control. In fact, not only do we see that in creation and over the nations, we see that in the affairs of man, in, in individual affairs. The Proverbs teaches us over and over uh, these truths. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter number 16. Speaking of being troubled and surprised at God, the proverb writer helps us a little further in that direction. He says in verse number four of chapter number 16 of Proverbs, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Look down at verse number nine. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Verse 33 tells us the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. We see these statements in Proverbs and, and we kind of understand that a little bit. And then you go through the Bible narrative and you're brought to characters like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Lot, Job. You see all of these characters reminding us God is not only sovereign in this kind of distant sort of fashion, but individually and uniquely involved and sovereign in our lives and the things going on in our lives. Sometimes it's more clear as we look backwards, we see the hand of God's providence leading us along the way. What the Bible affirms is that what comes into our lives comes from our Father's good hand. Paul and 
Jesus, all of these men remind us uh, and affirm for us God is in control. God is sovereign. Turn with me to the book of Acts, not only in our individual lives, but significantly in redemption itself. After all, redemption was God's plan. He is the one that gave the promise to Eve and all of humanity. He's the one that called Abraham out of the land of Chaldeans from a pagan religion. He is the one that established Egypt as a nation. He is the one that made the promise to David. He is the one who sustained the line of David to fulfill the promises. He is in control of his own promises, his own will, and his own work. And sometimes we might wonder, well, doesn't it seem like things are kind of out of control? I could take the kind of out of that, couldn't I? Doesn't it seem like things are out of control? I want you to consider for a moment, next week is Easter. And if you think about it in the weight of what is going on, on that Good Friday, we call it Good Friday. It ought to be called Black Friday or Red Friday or whatever it's called. It was a terrible day. Where where so much would seem to be on the line, so much turmoil and wickedness where the Son of God who is righteous and pure and holy is standing trial before wickedness and and evil. and, And it seems, as you read the account, by all rights, he is in the the power of or he's in the control of power-hungry, greedy, petty little men. And surely at such a display of that, if he is the king of all glory, that would be a moment where things seem to have just gotten out of hand when they abuse him and mock him and whip him and beat him. Surely that would be a moment where God let things slip. And yet Acts reminds us that redemption is his, it is his will, it is his plan, and every part of it moved along according to his desire. Acts chapter number 2 reveals this in verse number 22 as he began preaching to uh, the nation of Israel and as he was preaching to them Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of why they're there and what's going on and all of the things that was happening He says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him and in your midst as you yourselves know. Now what is he doing? Well, if you're using a golf analogy, he's teeing up the golf ball. He's setting up the, the, the weight of what he's getting ready to tell them. He is is leading them in. This man whom you know, who was among you, was testified. He did many, many works. God God proved he was who he was. He was your Messiah. And then he goes further to say, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was not where he was. He wasn't at the wrong place at the wrong time in the garden when the soldiers found him. In fact, he told Pilate as he is being, as he is being cross-examined by Pilate, if my kingdom is of this world, then my people would come and fight for me. I am doing exactly what I've been sent here to do. 
according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, he doesn't excuse them. In fact, he, he points the finger to them. You crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Who killed Jesus? The Jews. That's what he says, right? You killed him. Lawless men, the, the Romans killed him. We killed him. Humanity killed him. But at, behind it all, men could do nothing that the Father did not allow them to do. It was the Father's will. It was His plan to offer up Christ as sacrifice for men. And if He is in control at that point of history where everything seems to be flying out of control, can I just say, I think He can handle what's going on today. Don't you? Even your own salvation. The Bible pulls us in to give glory to God. That it was always God moving towards us. And sometimes we think it's a 50-50 thing. We'll meet you halfway. That old song, Meet in the Middle. But it's not. It's always God moving towards us. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Acts chapter number 16, as you're turning there, it was God who, who opened, speaking of Lydia, it was God who opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, speaking of this, this glory of God seen, the gospel seen uh, in the face of Christ Jesus he says, in their case, speaking of the unbelieving, the unsaved, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They are blinded. Ephesians, they're dead in their sin. They're at a place where they cannot see. They, they do not know. They, they do not understand. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What is he doing? Where do you hear that at? The book of Genesis. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, God said, let there be what? What happened? It lit up, right? It lit up. And so he says, this is the very same thing that happens in your heart. Because it is God who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is God who said in our darkened heart, let there be light, showing us the knowledge of, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is God who calls us. It is God who illuminates our eyes and understanding. It is God who convicts us of our sins, who regenerates us. All the glory goes, thanksgiving, thankfulness goes to God because it's his already. There is no boasting in ourselves. Well, all that to say that God is in control. God is sovereign. Now, I need to say there's something more. God exercising his sovereignty doesn't dislocate or disconnect his character. It isn't sovereign or love. 
Or it isn't power or goodness. Or it isn't control and kindness. We tend to think that way as we think about authority and abuse terms and uh, as it has been in our society. And naturally, we, our mind goes to that. We don't like authority naturally. We're rebels as Americans. We, our whole country is based on rebellion, right? A couple of you agree. Some of you wonder where I'm going with that. I'm just going there. I'm not going any farther. Take that wherever you want to go with it. But what we see is God ruling over his creation, ruling over our lives as a fatherly, uh, as his fatherly care, his love towards us. He doesn't drop off goodness and kindness as he interacts in our life. It's all of God ruling all of creation. He cannot be anything other than he is at any moment. And that's something to rejoice in. All this is just to say God is in control. And he may not reveal everything to us. Does he ever? Sometimes. Does he ever answer our questions? I think Job's still waiting. Not always. But he reveals enough to us in his word that we can lean on him and we can trust him. We can, we can rest in who he is. In fact, let me just, if you're taking notes or if you've taken a few notes, let me give you four things I think this does to help us. First of all, let me say, coming to the realization of God's sovereignty in all things gives us great comfort in times of trouble because he is for you. You may not be able to unravel the mystery. I can't even put a Rubik's Cube together, so don't ask me to explain things going on in my life sometimes. Actually, I, we got one at our house, and I took it apart. Have you, has, has anyone ever fixed a Rubik's Cube that way? couple of you that's cheating by the way but that's what, that's how i fix it when i'm done because I, I can't handle it being undone so i put all the pieces right where they go i skip a few steps along the way but there's comfort in in the middle of my trouble in my life because i know that god is for me that's what the, the bible says that's what the gospel teaches me secondly there's courage in times of chaos because He's not in chaos. Whether it's chaos in my own life or chaos in the world around us, know this, that he perfectly, know, he, he perfectly knows what he's doing. He's not up there worried and anxious, wondering what in the world I'm going to do. He is in perfect control of all things. Thirdly, not only does it give me courage in times of chaos, it gives me great convictions in times of uncertainty because he never fails. I might not know what will happen tomorrow. I might not know the outcome of, of today, but I know that he's in control and that gives me courage to be obedient and trust and believe in the moment, in the middle of my uncertainty. Mary and I lived in Tennessee for well, our whole life. Pretty much. I moved out for a little while and went out in the wilderness, come back while I was in the army. That's metaphorically speaking. Unless you're from Texas, then you think I went to the Canaan land, I guess. I don't know. And we loaded up a U-Haul to move up here in the Adirondacks. And we did not know what to expect. Other than we talk funny. 
But the courage wasn't having all the answers. In fact, I didn't even know what I was getting paid until after I agreed to come to the church. <laughs> and we were talking about, the whole, can we afford to go? I don't know. Well, what are they going to pay? I don't know. <laughs> you think you should ask them? I don't know. <laughs> Ryan said, I'll tell you at your second interview. Did Ryan tell me? No. <laughs> he left me in the I don't know. And Ed's like... He called me up after the vote, and he says, you know, we want you to come. We want you to pray about it and all this other stuff. And then, and then he finally said, I guess we should go over the package. So that would be nice. <laughs> but in all of that uncertainty, my trust wasn't in this church. It wasn't in everything would work out fine. And if it all fell apart tomorrow, my trust is in God and I can have courage in the middle of it because God does know what's going on. God is in control. He never fails. You get that? We fail all the time. Fourthly, let me just say that what we receive as we come to the realization of God's sovereignty is we get great clarity, especially in times of good and prosperity. Knowing that he receives the glory. Do you believe that? It is in our good times many times. And I was reminded of a sermon I heard a while back, quite a while back. Israel never did well in times of prosperity. But as we come to understand God and his working, his hand in our life, his providence, his leading, his, his control, we, we readily and humbly give him the glory because that's exactly what the sovereignty of God does. It humbles us and it helps us willingly and freely give him the glory he deserves. All glory goes to him. When we get to heaven, we're rewarded with the rewards of the service we did in this life. You know what we're going to do with those? We'll give them back to him because we acknowledge and we understand the glory is his. Beloved, let me just remind you that God is in control. Living the gospel is not only living with another's orientation for their joy in Christ Jesus, not only living with an eternal perspective for the glory of God, and not only living with an expectation to exalt Christ in all things, but is living with that reality that God is in control. I don't know it all, and you don't either. But let me just remind you this morning, if you don't get anything else, God's got it all together. He's got it all together. Don't you ever feel like you're a mess? <laughs> you can testify to that tonight, right? Oh, and doesn't sometimes God in his love and kindness nudge us along? Sometimes feels a little bit painful, but nudge us along and says, quit looking at yourself and look to me, trust me, believe in me. I'm doing good here. I know what I'm doing. Because he does. He does. You can trust him, church. Our nation is in turmoil and is, is crumbling apart. It's been that way. It's not just this presidency. It's been that way for years. The moral decay is just absolutely horrendous. The war in Ukraine just rips your heart out as you see the, the atrocity and the, and the turmoil that's going on. And with the repetition of it on social media and, and, and news cycle 24-7, it just continually reminds you of the wickedness that's prevailing in the world. Christians all over 
the world are being persecuted for their faith in Christ, for sharing the gospel. Yet in all of that, yet in all of that, we take great comfort that God is in control. He knows what he's doing. He is all wise, all knowing, all powerful, and he will finish what he started. And that is with creation itself, and that is with you yourself. Amen. Amen. Let me just say, if you don't know who Christ is this morning, that that is the first place we begin. That is our elementary lesson in who God is. I remember the song as we used to sing in children's Sunday school class, Jesus loves me, this I know, because that's what the Bible tells me so. And you may come this morning, your world is falling apart and everything else is chaos. And and, in one sense, I would say join the crowd. But in the other sense, I would say look to Christ. You may not get all the answers that you can find, but you will find a solid place to stand in the middle of it all. You'll find a shelter or a refuge or a place that you can come to. And and in the midst of that place, you'll find joy which will be unexplainable. That you can come in the middle of it all and, and sing as we did this morning, my sins are gone. Glory to God, my sins are gone. I want to invite you, if you don't know Christ, that is the offer of Christ this morning. That's the gospel. Come. And if you come, he will not reject you. And church family, I know we struggle with anxiety in Philippians. In one way, this ties back to Philippians because Philippians is a letter to remind us. Trust. 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 Because he's in control. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we can spend together this morning looking at your word. Thank you for uh, the words of a pagan king to remind us to look up to you, the God most high, the king of heaven who does whatever you will in heaven and on the earth. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We're thankful for the work you're doing in our life, knowing that, uh, that through, it all, uh, through it all, you are redeeming us, sanctifying us, and one day coming back for us. And Lord, we just praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat>